For several years, St. John's iconic Rookwood Park, the largest urban park in Canada at the time, was turned into a summer fairgrounds based on New York City's famous Coney Island. In the early 1900s, it featured rides that had never been seen before, like a ferris wheel and a merry-go-round, nightly fireworks, bars and restaurants, and acrobatic performances so daring that the daredevil chickened out, and a local waiter stepped in to perform them instead. One particular reporter, who certainly had a chip on his shoulder about the changes to the beloved park, was sent to cover its grand opening, but this reporter, voiced by our special guest star James Mullinger, actually came to enjoy the carnival, much to his surprise. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. Rookwood Park began in 1894 by a newly formed group called the St. John Horticultural Association, led by Father of Confederation Sir Leonard Tilley. From the beginning, it was supposed to be an aristocratic, posh urban garden. Basically, the exact opposite of a carnival. This group was determined to establish an urban park in St. John, and began purchasing up little plots of land to form a larger park. One of these modest plots of land was named Rookwood, which is spelled like Rockwood, but St. Johners won't be very impressed if you don't pronounce it as Rookwood, and that's where the park's name came from. By the time of Canada's centennial year, which is 1967, it was the largest urban park in the whole country. Much of the early work building the park was done by prisoners from local jails. There was even a little prison cell on the park's ground, in case the prisoners attempted to escape. The prisoners dug a series of three interconnected lakes, connected by locks, in the park. The Horticultural Association imported exotic plants, flowers, bulbs, and shrubs for the park's elaborate gardens. They were proud of their patriotic publicity efforts, like when they grew begonias in the shape of Lord Nelson's ship, the HMS Victory, to commemorate the Battle of Trafalgar. The Horticultural Association was particularly proud of Rookwood Park's swans, which had been donated in 1902 by the Vinters Association of England and had been sent all the way from Manchester. The birds are fine specimens. The swans have hatched a brood of six cygnets and are raising them. However, Rookwood Park was struggling. Meeting minutes reveal constant trouble is experienced in the park. With some astonishing difficulties, from bears terrorizing visitors to wild cats eating people's pets, and even what they called rough and ignorant persons who visit and throw sticks and stones at the animals. As if this wasn't bad enough, the Horticultural Association which ran the park was facing severe financial problems. Basically, they expanded too fast, spent too much money, and were drowning in a whopping $13,000 of debt. That is what led to the startling announcement on November 17th, 1906, 
that genteel old Rookwood Park would be turned into a very modern carnival ground based on New York City's then brand new Coney Island. Frank White, a well-known local athlete turned successful candy businessman who sported a then fashionable big bushy waxed upturned mustache had launched the effort. Frank White announced the upcoming changes to the park in the Daily Telegraph newspaper. The whole park will be lighted by electricity and a number of lights will be distributed around the lake. At one end of the pavilion, a bandstand will be erected and at the other, a merry-go-round. There will be a number of up-to-date rowboats for a hire as well as swan rides for the children. Lunches and ice cream will be provided, attractions will be brought in from fashionable resorts in the States and Upper Canada, and the programs will change every week. In the winter, the lake will be kept clear for skating parties. A rustic pavilion will be built for dancing parties. The comprehensive schemes of amusements will include band concerts, gramophone concerts, and the grandest amusements found in the great cities of North America, such as Montreal and New York City. When he said, swan rides for the children, I assume Frank White meant those old paddle boats that were shaped like swans that were popular at the time, not like putting your kids on the backs of those notoriously ornery feathered creatures and riding them around. I was myself chased by a swan once when I was about seven or eight years old and visiting family in London, England. It was a pretty traumatic experience. These beasts are pretty massive and actually pretty scary. So that's the origin story of my debilitating lifelong fear of swans. All I can say is that I'm glad that camera phones weren't a thing back then. Basically, the new Rookwood Park was going to be hyper-modern for its time. Electricity was still quite rare back then, and the whole park was going to be lit up with lights. There would be music played on gramophone records at a time when modern-ish pop music was quickly becoming popular. But back then, hearing music certainly wasn't an everyday occurrence. There would also be a restaurant offering soda pop, which was an incredibly popular and relatively new novelty drink at the time, as well as alcoholic refreshments, except, of course, on Sundays. People back in 1906 were no more welcoming of change back then than we are today, and there was a vocal knee-jerk reaction to the changes that modern listeners will probably find a little too familiar. Newspapers were flooded with angry letters denouncing the changes, saying things like, It is a change for the worse. Another person wrote, It is degenerate. Someone else wrote in saying, It is a shame to any decent community. There were also worries about litter, but litter was a little bit different back then. It will lead to peanut shells being littered everywhere. Despite the opponents, and there were a lot of them, the renovations to Rookwood Park went ahead that spring and it held its grand opening on a sunny and warm July the 1st, 1907. Thousands of people came out to see the new park. The Sun newspaper sent a reporter who opposed the changes to the park to cover its opening. He was a very curmudgeonly sounding reporter who began his article by complaining. Rockwood Park's religious quiet of its sylvan temples was shattered by a merry-go-round orchestra. Its proudest mountain ertopped by a yankified ferris wheel, and its sacred waters streaked with the wakes of dozens of badly rowed boats and canoes handled 
by untrained paddles. In the centre of the once magnificent breathing spot stands a gaudy pavilion. Prosaic electrical poles line rustic roads and clusters of incandescents stand ready to oust Fair Luna from her steady job. Rockwood Park was an entirely new experience on Saturday. However, even this curmudgeon managed to be won over by the end of the day when he wrote. It was Rockwood Park's fresh debut in every sense of the word, and it is surely no fiction to state that it made a markedly favourable impression. Thousands of men, women and children streamed in, and exclamations of delightful surprise burst forth from youthful and adult lips as the transformation of the scenery came into view. As if some good fairy had created the pleasure paraphernalia with a wave of her magic wand, there stood ice cream rooms, a soda bar, merry-go-round, shoot-the-shoots, ferris wheel, boats and canoes, and a flood of bunting and electric lighting suggestive of an elaborate exposition. Everybody seemed pleased. Even the lack of streetcar service was forgotten. And with the continual grind of merry-go-round music, shouts of boaters and tinkle of spoons and dishes in the big eating house, a rare afternoon and evening's fun was had. The reporter seemed overwhelmed as he passed amongst the large crowd, the music and the lights, and even all of the animals milling about. A lordy peacock screeched at me angrily. See, it's not just me having problems with large exotic birds. The reporter did manage to unearth some controversy that day, though. During the past day, a person approached this sun reporter, declaring, My little girl has been given a copper to spend, and she likes to chew gum. She placed them in a machine and has received no gum in return. I think a scandalous shame, and consider it an outrage, and we'll speak to the police about it. I will break it into pieces, declared the little girl, to get back my money. Frank White approached the reporter, beaming most invitingly, and invited the reporter to take a ride on the 25-foot-tall Ferris wheel, the first Ferris wheel the city had ever seen. The ferris wheel elicited wonderment because of its novelty in this town. The wheel, which stands about 25 feet high on a rocky eminence, contains six cars with accommodations for three or four persons each. It is moved by electricity. The first passengers went up in the air with reluctance. As the wheel slowly revolved, a charming view of the park and surrounding country, city, Bay of Fundy and Valley were obtained. The reporter was too afraid to go on the Ferris wheel, so Frank White invited him to try the merry-go-round instead. He reluctantly agreed and described his first ever ride. The whistle was tooted and 50 children, this one adult, and two teddy bears whirled into space for a length of time which could only have been definitely determined by a stopwatch. This dizzy reporter avers it was fully ten minutes, but the gleeful wee chap who rode the bay horse next to him is sure it was only 39 seconds. The teddy bears that the reporter mentions were a brand new fad. Teddy bears were a recent invention back then, named after the then-American president, Teddy Roosevelt, 
and those two children who had them on the merry-go-round were definitely on the cutting edge of children's fashion. Only the very day before, a brand new movie made by Thomas Edison had been shown in St. John, introducing children of that city to teddy bears for the first time. It was one of the first ever animated movies, and it involved Goldilocks secretly spying on teddy bears. She watches them through a peephole, magically dancing an elaborate, big, choreographed, acrobatic dance routine. And then Teddy Roosevelt, the American president, randomly appears and shoots the bears. I think it's supposed to be a political satire for kids in a children's movie. It's a really weird and incredibly jarring film. You can find it on YouTube if you want. But it sent the children who saw it into a manic frenzy of demanding cute, cuddly stuffed teddy bears, which instantly became the hottest trend of 1907. Five days later, the park was formally opened by the mayor with a speech that the press described as actually quite witty. His speech was received with the audience giving him three cheers, and then the assembled children broke into a spontaneous singing of The Maple Leaf Forever. The event featured free soda pop, and at night there was the first of what would be a nightly fireworks display at the park. An astonishing 12,000 of the city's 41,000 residents visited that day. What everyone wanted to see that day, though, was the first ever Shoot the Shoots act, a remarkably dangerous-looking giant slide that would launch a daredevil on a bicycle into Lily Lake. A stuntman named Jack Armour had been hired to perform the feat. He came down all the way from Montreal, which at the time was Canada's biggest city, to perform this risky trick. However, as soon as he actually saw the shoot the shoots, he balked at how unsafe it looked and refused to go down it. Meanwhile, there was a commotion around the slide as crowds pushed in. Police had some words with some men who were too eager. Further drama happened when Frank White Hearing that the stuntman was refusing to go down the chute the chutes, grabbed a canoe on the far side of Lily Lake and furiously paddled across towards the giant slide to try and calm things down. His canoe got caught by a strong wind and flipped over, landing him in a full three-piece suit in the water. The Sun newspaper reported, Frank White got a ducking today in an accident that caused much excitement among the large number of people in the park. The wind was blowing hard at the time and in the middle of the lake the canoe overturned and Mr. White was soon struggling in the water. Despite all kinds of advice being shouted to Mr. White from the shore, he clung to the canoe for 10 minutes before being rescued and was exhausted when he reached the shore. In this highly charged atmosphere, much to everyone's astonishment, a young caterer named Charles Fish volunteered to ride the bicycle down the chute the chute's giant slide. As a waiter, he had never done this before. He also didn't have any safety gear. The many onlookers held their breath. Charles Fish got on the bicycle at the top and went careening at breakneck speed down the giant slide. Instead of having his bicycle launched up into the air on the ramp at the bottom and then gracefully sailing through the air on his bicycle before splashing into the lake like he was supposed to, Charles Fish hit the ramp too hard and was launched over the bicycle's handlebars, flying headfirst 
into the lake. St. Johners, having never actually seen the feat performed before, assumed this was what was supposed to happen and erupted into rapturous applause. Charles Fish would become a St. John celebrity and would go on to perform his curious personal performance of flying over the handlebars every evening while the park remained open. Frank White had signed a 10-year lease to create his carnival in Rookwood Park, but it wouldn't last that long. It was pared down to a shadow of its former glory only seven years later, during the summer that the First World War broke out. It faded away during the four long years of the war and would slip into obscurity with a quiet sigh, never regaining its early splendor of those heady, optimistic years at the beginning of the 20th century when it seemed like anything was possible. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.